Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Let me welcome all you joining us online. And if you are joining us for the very first time this morning, either online or here in person, we are extremely honored and excited to have you join us for week five of a series where we've entitled it, The Kingdom is Near. And we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to continue that walk today. So if you have a Bible, uh, whether you have a printed version or you have it on an electronic device, go ahead and open up the Bible to Nehemiah chapter two as we continue uh, in our series. We're looking at verses four through eight. And as you're turning there, a couple of announcements. First announcement, next week, if you don't already know this, next week, the time changes. Boo. <laughs> Not because of just the time, it's just that we don't like change. And so the time changes next week, so we fall back next week. Make sure you make note of that, uh, and we'll try to remind you throughout the week as well. Uh, this past Monday night, we had our very first prayer vision night here in the auditorium. It was a very special uh, evening of prayer where we were praying over where God is leading us in our kingdom expansion project um, and just praying for what's next and our uh, it was a very powerful night, and I want to invite you to join us on our next one, which is coming up on November 10th at 6 p.m. We'll start here in the auditorium. So November 10th at 6 p.m. We'll start in the auditorium. Weather permitting, we will try to make our way outside and uh, do uh, prayer throughout our campus and stuff as we see where God is taking us. Um, and also, we're in week five of our prayer guide that we have shared with you guys um, several weeks ago. Uh, and so week five of the prayer guide is the last uh, part of this prayer guide that we handed out. Next week, you will uh, have the opportunity to grab a new prayer guide, which will take you into uh, the first part of December. And then in December, we'll have one last one to take us through the end of the year. And so uh, that'll be online as available as well. So if you don't get the paper uh, copy, you can get it online. Okay. Hopefully you've turned to Nehemiah chapter 2 as we look at verses 4 through 8. Last week we talked and looked at after four months of prayer and we will see planning as we get into our text today. Uh, last week we moved into action, right? As God opened up an opportunity for uh, the Nehemiah to see the plan set in motion and we looked at how Nehemiah had been waiting on this moment, uh, waiting on it in prayer and he um, had been waiting for God to move. And what we said last week is that our waiting time is not wasted time, it's invested time. Waiting time on God is not wasted time, it's invested time. And we're going to see that actually play out in the text today and in the coming weeks. And so verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2 set set for us a, a setting, if you will. Nehemiah is in the royal palace. He's with the king, and we're going to see he's actually with the queen as well. And he's sad, and the king notices this about him. And so Nehemiah responds to the king's question about his sadness, pointing to the destruction of his city, um, the place of his father's grave. And so what I want to do is I just want to read verses 1 through 3 just to kind of reset the scene, if you will, and then we'll move into our text. So Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now I had not been sad in his presence. Verse 2. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Verse 3. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So that is what we looked at last week. Those are the, the first verses of chapter 2, and we kind of broke those down and saw kind of the, the moment that's taking place with Nehemiah, with the king, and as we're going to see in our text, with the queen as well. And so now that we're caught up, let's look at our text, verses 4 through 8. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So the big picture of our text, really, the text is about this interaction between Nehemiah and the king. They kind of go back and forth with question and answer. And it's about Nehemiah receiving his permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and rebuild the, the gates and the walls and to make a place for God's name to dwell, to bring glory to God and, and for all that, which is what Nehemiah's heart was about. My question for us is that our heart is that what you and I build and put our hands to work to, is it for God's glory or our own? See, this was Nehemiah's heart. It was for God's glory. He wanted his whole life to be focused and given over to God's glory. Are we pursuing the same in our opportunities that are before us and upon us throughout our lives? Not just throughout the local church, but wherever God has placed us, are we pursuing that same desire of our of heart like Nehemiah had to bring God glory in all that we have and do. And there's a question to ask, though. As we read this text, who's responsible for rebuilding Jerusalem? Who's responsible for rebuilding the, the gates and the walls? Who's responsible, Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, or God? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes. It's Nehemiah's plan. It's the king's command, and it's the good hand of God that are responsible for rebuilding Jerusalem. But notice that Nehemiah is not idle in this. He is going to move into action. In fact, as we continue studying, we'll find that it's not just Nehemiah, it's actually the whole people of God who are going to unite for a purpose to give God glory as they build the walls again, to see God's name being, being shared and praised among the people and for the surrounding you know, nations and and kingdoms and for them to see their great God. And as one commentator explained it, he says that the major theme from Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra the book prior to Nehemiah, is that God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish his redemptive purposes. God works sovereignly through responsible human agents, that's you and I, to accomplish his redemptive purposes here 
on earth. And so, again, in the big picture, what these verses teach us is significant for us in our understanding of what God's doing in our own lives and the world around us, but also what God is doing in all of history. In all of history, as he's bringing together his redemptive purpose through the life and the work of Jesus Christ, his son and our savior. So that's kind of the big picture of, the, of what's happening in this moment. And there's a hinge moment here. We're going to talk about that. Look again at verse 4. The king asked him, what do you want? Nehemiah, what do you want? See, Nehemiah was, Nehemiah's response to the king in verse 3, when he said, why are you sad? The king asked him in, in our first part of our text. He said, why are you sad? And Nehemiah said, I'm sad because my father's home, the homes of my father, the, the place of my father's graves is in ruin. And that satisfied the king to know that it wasn't about him or it wasn't about his life, right? And so then he asked Nehemiah, what do you want? What is it that you want? And we see Nehemiah's heart in the next sentence. Notice what happens in verse 4. The king says, what are you requesting? Look at what he does. So I prayed. I prayed. That's Nehemiah. Is that us? Do we pray before we step? Is it a part of life? Is it our operational mode of life, praying before moving? We've tried to model that as a church this fall, that we would pray and unite together through prayer for God's good work and God's movement to come. And really the whole story turns right here, right? This is the hinge. It turns right here in the middle of their conversation. It happens in verse 4. While he's talking to the king and before he makes his request, he prays. And it wasn't a long prayer. It wasn't some like, hold on, let me bow, let me, you know, close my eyes, let me get down, you know, on the floor. It wasn't anything like that. In the middle of his meeting with the king, in the middle of his sadness and his fear, as we understood in the first part of our text, Nehemiah acknowledges his inadequacy. He acknowledges his weakness. He acknowledges in this moment his dependence upon God. And so what does he do? He prays to God. This is, this is not just in the moment that, hey, this is maybe what I should do. This is because he has a, a life of prayer. His, his life is, is founded on and, and works within and through prayer. This was the natural thing for him to do. So whatever it was that Nehemiah needed in that moment, he made a short, brief prayer to God asking for that very thing. Most commentators call this an arrow prayer. See, this was a, an arrow prayer. It's as sometimes it's called. The arrow prayer is at the heart and center of the passage. It's where you shoot a prayer straight into the throne, right into the throne room, right to God. And what we see, and this is a big point for us, that Nehemiah made the prayer before he made his request. He prayed before he made his request. Even in the shortness, the brevity of the prayer, he knew this was first and then he kept going as he interacted with the king. And don't miss the encouragement here. The encouragement that Nehemiah's prayer gives to us to make, really make, make an, an example for us that we can have that same short prayer as a part of our daily interaction, as a part of our daily life and responsibilities. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers and authors, he writes this about this particular text. He says, short arrow prayers are great are of great use to us, dear friends. Oftentimes they check us. Bad-tempered people 
If you are always to pray just a little before you let angry expressions fly from your lips, why many times you would not say those naughty words at all. He goes on to say, he says, I can recommend it as a valuable prescription for the hasty and the peevish, for all who are quick to take offense and slow to forgive insult or injury. Spurgeon says, these little prayers, these arrow prayers, if you will, right in the middle of what we are doing, right in the middle of our every day, they can go a long way for showing our dependence upon God and our lack of confidence. And that's not self-deprecating. That's, that's a posture of humility in ourselves. They'll check our pride, and they'll keep us from being worldly. And then, and then Spurgeon says this, and it's probably only a line that Spurgeon could say. And he says, it would be like sweet perfume burnt in the chamber of your soul to keep away the fever of the world from your heart. Only Spurgeon can make something so beautiful, so profound. I'm not even sure what that means, to be totally honest with you. It's really cool. It's a great line. We should put it somewhere on the wall. But this sort of prayer is significant significant. It's an indication of an overall habit of a prayerful life. And it's an overall indication of a life that's ordered under the rule of God, not according to the ways of the world. And here's the great thing. God delights in this. God delights in our coming to him in these moments, in this, even in the brevity, in the short, quick prayers. God, help me. Before I walk on stage, I use an arrow prayer every Sunday, every time. God, I can't, but you can. I can't, but you can. Every time. And it's a reminder for me, my dependence, and God delights in us coming to him like that. We can come to him and speak with a rawness, with a, a genuineness and sincereness. You can talk to him just like you're thinking it because because you know he knows what you're thinking. Now the king, you couldn't do that. Nehemiah, you can't come to this king of Persia, Artaxerxes, with that type of tone, or, or maybe even with the words you want to say. They wouldn't have any part of that. But God delights in this. Nehemiah was dependent upon God. And I'll tell you, there is no greater indicator of how much we depend on God than our propensity to pray. There's no greater indicator of how much you and I depend on God than our propensity to pray. Nehemiah understands the truth of Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Nehemiah understood the truth of Psalm 72, 12. It says, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. Nehemiah was willing to wait on God, to depend on God. And in this, he is enabling him to speak with courage to the king. It emboldens Nehemiah to speak on behalf of God and his people. Why? Here's why. Because as great as a king as Artaxerxes was and his empire was, Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. And every kingdom of humanity pales in comparison to the kingdom of God. And as great as Artaxerxes and others think he is, he does not come close to the God and King of all creation. Nehemiah knew this. 
That's why he was bold and courageous. He knew who he was praying to. He knew who he was dependent upon. And it wasn't anybody on earth. It was the King of Kings. It was the Lord of Lords. It was the Creator. And that's why we say it's always privileged for us as disciples, those who have responded to the invitation to know Christ as Savior, as Lord. It's privileged now for us to be a part of that as God has given us the responsibility and the blessing of being a part of the expansion of His kingdom here on earth to see His redemptive purpose move forward, which is all about what we're trying to do here, what God has led us to on our campus, is see that expansion. And again, not just for us here and now, but for the generations to come until Jesus comes back. That we want to see more and more people come to know the same saving grace that you and I know. And we have this privilege, and we have this boldness, and we have this courage because we know who we're praying to. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, and he says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Here it is. Here's the action. He had wrestled with what to do about the problems in Jerusalem. He had wept over them. He had done that for four months. He fasted and he prayed and he planned and he prepared. But now he's ready to go and to speak to the king. He was ready to go and enlist the king's permission to go and rebuild and to get to work. And this was a completely new and major undertaking for Nehemiah. To which I say, amen, I understand. For what God has for us today and where he's leading us that is completely new and a major undertaking for us as a church and a leadership. There's work to be done, though. So Nehemiah stops praying. He stops his period of praying and fasting in order to go to work. Go do the job that God's called him to. See, there comes a time to go to work. There comes a time where we got to put our hands and our feet in action. Even without the answers, even without all the clarity, even without the, the perfect plan or strategic you know, strategy that just moves outward, that's just clear and, and simple, and it's step by step without any of that. Because if we had all that, there wouldn't be dependence. We wouldn't need God. So we step in faith one step at a time. Nehemiah is going to do that. We're going to see that through the rest of this book. We have to get moving. We should never use prayer as an excuse to be idle. Nehemiah shows us this. So there's a change. There's a shift here in verse 4 and verse 5. If you look back there, Nehemiah says, So I prayed to the God of heaven and, verse 5, I said to the king. I prayed to God and I said to the king. It's like those two things are happening at the same time. Again, he doesn't let his prayer be an excuse not to act. But instead, it emboldened him to go to the king, to make very bold requests of the king. It was because he knew the sovereignty and the power of God that he was able to go into the presence of the king of Persia, the most powerful person on earth at the time, and ask him for his help to rebuild the city of his people to begin a task that he had ahead of him. His trust was in God, not in himself. And because of that, it made him bold. Prayer can bring that power from on high. 
pray to the God of heaven and lead us to move forward. And then you look at verses 6 through 8. You look at what he asks for as we read what happens here. Let's understand that God's sovereignty is responsible for every blessing. The book of James talks about every good gift is from God, right? Any success, any good result is, to, is due to the good hand of God. All credit and all praise belongs to God and God alone. And we do well to remember that. We do well to remember that all praise, all power is to God and God alone. It keeps us in that posture of humility so that God can use us. And if you notice in verses 5 to 8, there's this interesting sequence there. Verse 5, it says, if it pleases the king. Nehemiah asked that he would be sent to Judah. Then in verse 6, it says, so it pleased the king to send me. And then in verse 7, it says, if it pleases the king, that he would give him letters and supplies. And in verse 8, it says, the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, if we're going to follow the pattern, it would, it would be that he granted what he asked for. The king granted what Nehemiah asked for because it pleased him. And actually, the word here in Hebrew, it's the same word, please and good. And instead, you get to the end of this text. At the end result, what causes the king to grant the request is not because it pleased the king ultimately, but rather because it was God's good hand that was upon Nehemiah that set these things in action. Yes, Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes, contribute to the work in their own way, but God brings it all to pass. It's God's sovereign power and will, and, and will that makes these good things happen. Amen. And this is such a powerful point in truth and principle of Scripture for us to remember and to know. It also keeps us, again, humble, which keeps us usable. Any favor with the king, any rebuilding of Jerusalem, any success in ministry, whatever good blessing we enjoy is the result of God's good hand that is upon us. And he deserves all the praise. And may we remember that as we move forward with where God is leading us, that in all that he does and all that he's going to do, that we never, ever position ourselves in a place of pride. But we stay humble together, and it's going to take us uniting in that humility to see this good work, this incredible work of God complete. Let's just rest real. Let's just rest in the last part of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knew. You know, he, he knew the good hand of his God was upon him. And it was the good hand of his God that was over the king and over the Persian Empire as well. He knew this. God's sovereignty extends over every power. Period. Every power is in submission to God's sovereign hand. And we never forget that comfort as we live our daily lives, that God is in control and all-powerful over all people and places and things. Think about this. When Jesus was rejected by the Jewish authorities, when he was condemned to death by the Roman government, when he was, when he was scourged, when he was beaten by the schemes and, of the devil, and when he was executed on the cross... He disarmed rulers 
He disarmed authorities. He put them to open shame as the Bible teaches us. It says he triumphed over them as Paul writes in the book of Colossians. How did he do it? By his resurrection. Jesus defeated death and he overcame sin so that he can extend forgiveness. He can extend grace and love and mercy. And the authority and the dominion of his kingdom over everyone who would come to him in faith and call Jesus King, call him Lord, call him Savior. All who call Jesus Lord, King, Savior will receive the blessings of the kingdom of God which lasts forever. And the blessings of grace and the blessings of forgiveness, the blessings of his steadfast love, the blessings of his steadfast mercy and patience and kindness and the blessing on top, a blessing on top, a blessing. So to all that those who call on him as king and Lord can say with Paul in Romans 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in ours in Christ Jesus. Church, that's the power of the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of which we are a member if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We get to serve him with joy. But not only joy, we get to serve him with confidence we get to serve him with security that we can say, in whatever situation, whatever may come, wherever we find ourselves, whatever challenge we may face, the good hand of my God is upon me. Boldness, humility, contentment, that's what God's good hand brings to us. Let's pray. Father, Father, we're grateful. We're grateful. She didn't leave us on our own to figure this out. Not only what you've placed in front of us as a church, but just in our, in our own lives. You didn't leave us on our own. And for those that may be here watching, listening, who, who think they have to just figure it out on their own, God, speak, reveal yourself, show, show them that they don't have to figure it out on their own. That through your word, through your presence, with your spirit within our lives, through a relationship and a belief in Jesus as the one who conquered sin and resurrected, the one who paid our debt that separated us, there is a way. And that you're with us every day, day by day. So God, call people home to that truth that blessed assurance in Christ. May you penetrate their hearts. May you penetrate the walls, the things that have stopped them from coming home. God, may we run to you. May we run. Let's not walk. Let's not be idle. Let's not drift or be distracted. Let us run. God, let us remember that in the days when we can't run, the days that we just crawl, that you're right there with us. We're never alone. And God, as we look to what you're doing in and through our church, what you're bringing to us, may we be 
confident that the good hand, your good hand is upon us for your glory and the good of all people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.